0: Good morning, Arbor Church. Welcome to Second Service, July 15th already. All right, for parents, that may be a happy point because it's halfway through the summer and your kids go back to school. For the kids, it's a sad point because it's halfway through the summer. But welcome today. My name is Scott Heatherington, I'm a member here at Arbor and on the speaking rotations from time to time and always enjoy the Sundays that I get to speak. We'll find out if you enjoy the Sundays that I get to speak today. Um, I'm a principal in the Bellevue School District at elementary school. Um, I love the job that I do. I'm a father of three wonderful children. Two of them are here today. All right, two in college, one in junior and high school, who wishes she was in college and could leave soon. But that's life, and that's how we roll. So I'm glad to be here today. I'm excited that we're going to a Mariners game. And unlike Jake and his completely unawareness of Mariners or anything baseball, I love the Mariners. Um, I was just talking in the back, how did I become a Mariners fan if I'm not from Seattle? Because I lived in Chicago until I was 10, so I grew up a Cubs fan. Moved to Idaho, there's no sports teams in Idaho. Had a long conversation with that with my dad one day over a root beer float. And so I chose Seattle as my surrogate city from Idaho to start cheering for. Little did I know that the losing nature of the Cubs would be haunting me with the Mariners too, so. But... Here we are, we're in a good position as the Mariners, and while we may be declining in our wins and the A's are in a hot streak, I texted out to Tanya Harding that maybe she could visit the A's locker room, and (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Who knows what may happen? Because I don't have a lot of faith in my Mariners. You know, I wanted to believe, I wanna go there, but I always wait till August to really see what's happening. So I will be looking forward to that Mariners game and cheering them on as we make a playoff run. So welcome here this morning, I appreciate you being here. If you're a first time visitor, Sit back, relax, enjoy yourself, and uh, we hope that you enjoy Arbor and come back and visit us again. Our key passage is out of Matthew 26 today, 36 through 46. We're going to be talking about this topic of awareness. Have you ever like, been in a situation and like, walked away from it and gone, what just happened? Maybe you're reading a book and you get like, five, six pages down and you're like, I don't even know what I just read, and have to go back and reread it again. And then you go, I don't remember that again. And you have to reread it again. Or maybe you've driven home after a stressful day of work and you pull into the driveway and you're like, I don't even remember how many red lights I might have gone through or if I ran anybody off the road, but I made it home. So this awareness of like you can be present and not sort of like you're in the moment, kind of like trying to talk to your teenage kids. Can you hear the words coming out of my mouth? Hello, right there. So that's what we're going to be tackling today, this awareness, all right? Um, And we're in a series called Questions Jesus Asked. And we've gone through a series of questions that Jesus asked, and these questions are more of a rhetorical nature. It's not so much the question that Jesus asked, but the why in the question. The what was it he was trying to teach us. Because when Jesus asked some of these questions, he was trying to get to a deeper truth, a deeper meaning. So the passage that we're going to find our question in today is out of Matthew 26, 36 through 46. You can read along on whatever reading device you have, a Bible, or you can look at the screen, and we will read here. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed, my father, my father, When he came back, he found them sleeping again because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Let's pray quickly. God, I thank you for the opportunity to look into your scripture, your inspired word, Lord. I pray, God, as we look at it, that you would move me out of the way, Lord, and that your truth would be spoken today. That whatever I have in my notes would be secondary to the message that you want to share today with all of us in this room. God, I pray that you'd be glorified in what we learned today. I pray that you give us ears that want to hear, hearts that want to listen, and feet that want to take that message out to the world. Thank you, Jesus, for your abundant grace, mercy, and love. Amen. So the background to this little passage is this. Jesus had just finished the Last Supper with his disciples. It was quite the Last Supper. They not only broke bread and drank wine, he had talked about a betrayer in their midst, and then he'd sent Judas off to go do the betraying. Not sure all the disciples caught that right away. Peter was told that he would deny Jesus three times. Peter argued. Jesus was adamant. So Peter took a sword with him. Jesus talked about his death and departure and what was coming. They then got up and left the room for the Last Supper and began walking towards Gethsemane. The setting of our passage is the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a garden of olive trees with paths through it. Jesus may have visited here before and prayed here before. It lies just outside the city limits of Jerusalem. In fact, you have to leave the city You have to cross the Kidron Valley, which in the Old Testament is famous for when David had to flee Absalom in Absalom's rebellion seeking to kill his father. Kind of interesting that Jesus crosses that same valley the night before his death. And they find themselves at the base of the Mount of Olives in this garden. And it is in this garden, all right, that Jesus says his last prayers on earth that Jesus poses probably a final question for his disciples. And the passage can be looked at in three different sections. Jesus' time praying alone. Jesus' petition to the Father, is "Is there another way to do this? And Jesus asking the disciples to be present and intercede with him. And so we're going to dig through that today and look at what we can find in the question that Jesus asked. So we have a carpenter's son, inanguished, overwhelmed in his own words to the point of death, beseeching his heavenly Father for a way out, yet not my will, God, your will. It's Jesus' final act, and his final act is of sacrifice, and his final act is of, it's not about me, God, it's about you, and them, and everyone that's going to come after them. And I want you to hold that in your mind as we go through this today because we're going to circle back around to that. That while Jesus' humanity wanted a way out, he saw the bigger picture, what he needed to do for others and for his father. And I want you to keep that grain in there as we go through this. Let's look back at verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and two sons of Zebedee, Some in scripture called the sons of thunder, because one time when they were walking through Samaria, the prejudice of the Samaritans and the Jews, the Samaritans would not give them housing. And James or John were like, hey God, do you want us to call down lightning from heaven and consume them, fire? So if you want to picture them as Thor and Loki, the sons of thunder, you can do that. All right. Then he said to them, My soul, he said to Peter, James, and John, the three that he took with him. Then he said to these three, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. As I highlighted before, Jesus was in turmoil, but he knew the road before him. He was fully aware of what was happening. He was pleading for another way, yet willing to sacrifice himself to fulfill the prophecy of the Father that he knew had to be done. Yet in his humanity, he did not want to be alone. He wanted friendship. In his last moments, he wanted a friend to pray with him. In verse 40, Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And here we come to our question for this week. Couldn't you keep watch with me for one hour? It's interesting that it says he directed it to Peter, who just an hour earlier was told, you're going to deny me three times. No, I won't, Jesus. Yes, you will. No, I won't. And here he is again saying, Peter, couldn't you keep watch with me for one hour? I wonder what his tone was like in that moment. I think it was probably filled with disappointment, exasperation, desperateness. He's on the edge of life. And the three he chose to come with him closest fell asleep. You know, your tone of voice can say a lot in a moment to carry a question. I teach elementary school, and so I practice with students all the time, and my kids could probably tell you I'm all about respect and tone of voice. And I know I tell kids all the time, I said, just take the word okay, and how different that can sound. When I was a kid, one of my chores was always taking the garbage out, and of course I would procrastinate as long as possible. And I'd be downstairs doing something, playing pool or foosball in our basement. Mom would yell down, Scott, did you take the garbage out? Right. Scott, can you come take the garbage out? Okay, no problem. Scott, can you come take the garbage out? Okay, uh, that's not too cool. Scott, can you come take the garbage out? Okay, oh, that's really worse. And then she yells, don't be rolling your eyes at me. You get up here and take this garbage. I'm like, how can you see me rolling my eyes? I'm in the basement between you and me. Moms, they got this, you know, They can can tell things. But tone of voice can be everything. And I wonder what the tone was like in that moment. But more importantly than the tone is the meaning. What did Jesus mean when he asked Peter, could you not keep watch with me for one hour? What was he trying to get Peter to understand in that moment, that rebuke? That exasperation, that question, what was it and why did he ask it in that way? If you look at the New Testament, the word watch has two different Greek words. And they both have similar meanings. One is to stay awake, the other is to be sleepless. But they are usually used in the idea of to be vigilant, to be on guard, fully awake. To be alert, active, intensely focused. Kind of like a watchman on the tower. A watchman in the tower of a castle. That's how it's normally used in Greek. And we could take it for that physical sense in this passage if it wasn't for the very next thing that Jesus says to Peter, which is watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That statement by Jesus takes the watch, the ver- word watch, into a more spiritual aspect. And that's always the point with Jesus. It's not just the question, it's the spiritual message he's trying to get us to understand in his question. So when we look at the question, couldn't you keep watch with me for one hour? I decided to try to look up some different words for watch and what that can mean. I looked under Urban Dictionary for the word awake or woke. And there's this term out there now that stay woke. And I looked it up and it says this. Woke is being aware and knowing what's going on in the community. It's the idea that we are aware of what is happening not only to ourselves, but we're aware of what is happening to us, to others around us, and through us. Being woke. So for me today, the word watch means this, stay woke. Because there's a difference between being woke and awake. Because you can be awake and not present. Woke is a sense of activeness, a sense of engagement. The watching that Jesus was seeking from his disciples was an awareness of the moment that he was facing. His betrayal and death was imminent upon them. He needed them to not only be alert to approaching dangers, but to be aware of his turmoil and to pray for his strength and fortitude in these last moments of his life. He could have called down the host of heavens, and what he really wanted was the disciples to be present and to be woke. They're 10 feet from their Savior, the light of the world. And as many of our Christians today, we're asleep in the light. Great artist, Keith Green. Listen to this song. Are we asleep in the light of our Christianity? Are we just navigating the Bible stories and what we know to be true about the Bible and what we've learned from our parents and just navigating this simple, secure, safe Christian life? And in the reality, we are asleep in the light of the Savior, feet from us, interceding God on our behalf. We need to stay woke. I believe Jesus told us to stay woke for three key reasons. And the first one, he says it right to Peter. Right there, he says, watch, stay woke, and pray. So the first reason he wants us to stay woke is he wants us to stay woke to pray. In verse 41, it says, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I don't know what your weakness is. I don't know if it's, you know, chocolate ice cream. I don't know if it's Pepsi. I don't know if it's Housewives of Beverly Hills, The Bachelor. I don't know if it's whatever secret show you binge you don't tell anybody. I don't know what your weakness is, all right? But you ever been there like, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to eat this. I'm not going to... Great desire, but man, our flesh, we just like those things. Jesus not only wanted time to pray by himself, to beseech his father on his behalf, he wanted the disciples to pray for him, to intercede for him. Prayer is connected to staying woke. If you aren't praying, you won't stay woke. In James chapter 1, verse 5, we find this passage, James 1, 2 through 5. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, those moments of what the heck is going on here, God, you should ask God. Prayer, asking. Who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. James tells us you're going to have trials, temptations, and tribulations. You're going to need prayer to persevere and get wisdom from God on how to deal with those things. Luke 21, verse 36, shares with us. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. But prayer is not just for trials and tribulations. I would say that most of us find ourselves the most awake when we are comfortable in our success. In the riches, yes, we are rich in this room by world standards. That has led to our lack of need for prayer in our life. Oh, we're good at when things are going bad crying out to God. What about when everything's cozy and comfortable? Because in our comfort, we get complacent. In our discomfort, we get agitated. I've learned far more about the grace and mercy and love of Christ in my discomfort, and I am thankful for it. I have to be far more woke in my comfort and complacency of life. And prayer will do that for you. I grew up in Southeast Idaho. Idaho Falls, to be exact, like I shared earlier, and it's famous for potatoes. It's a dry, arid, high desert area, and potatoes need water to grow, and there's not a lot of water there. So they've built all these irrigation canals off the Snake River that that go across the countryside. And these irrigation canals were used to get water to the fields. But to get water from the irrigation canal to the field, you have to run a pipe into the canal, and then pipes across the field connected together, then turn the pump on, and it sprays and sprinkles water on the fields. And then every four hours, you turn the water off. They hire kids like me at 13 or 14, a rite of passage in manhood, to go out and unhook the pipes, pick up this 50-foot pipe stuck in the mud, carry it 50 rows, set it down, go back, get the next pipe, carry it, connect it, so on and so forth until you've moved an entire pipe system across the potato field. Then you must go down, connect the pump to the pipe, turn it on, and pull out. Sprinklers come on. Unless you haven't coupled the pipes correctly. And if you don't couple the pipes correctly... No matter of awareness of the farmer knowing the field needs to be irrigated, no matter awareness of the farmer of knowing he has to get water with his crops, if he doesn't couple the pipes correctly from the canal, the pipes blow. And water shoots in the air. And while it might flood a certain area, and then I'm called up to go out there and get wet and soaked while the farmer stands on the side and laughs, all right? As I'm fighting the water spout, trying to get the pipes connected and didn't realize he turned the water off first to connect the pipes. And he laughs more. Oh, these youngsters these days, they can't do nothing. I did that barefoot and backwards when I was your age. <laughs> the point is this. As Christians, we are aware of the need of prayer in our life. Just like the farmers aware of the need of water in his fields. And we've got a river of life that we have access to in the Savior, Jesus, and God the Father. And yet we don't connect our pipe line for that water correctly or successfully enough, which is prayer. And if we aren't in prayer and we don't move the pipes to where there's a need and we don't bring prayer to the areas of need in our life, They're really woke. Well, how do you know where the needs are? By staying woke. See, you can't stay woke and then not go into prayer. All you are is a farmer aware that he's in a drought, but he's doing nothing to water his crops. We would call that stupidity. Yet how many times as Christians are we aware we are woke to what we need to do and we're not accessing the prayer of pipeline to heaven? The power of God is right there for us. Jesus wanted his disciples to pray. Peter, you're gonna deny me. You need to pray because your spirit is willing, Peter, but your flesh is weak. Scott, you need to pray. I know you wanna do these things, but you can't do it on your own. See, I think Jesus knew some things in this moment. He knew that prayer would serve as the pipeline to surviving the trials, temptations, and tribulations that were coming for the disciples. Our powers are fallible. Jesus, in his moment of humanity, knew he needed prayer in his life. In his last moments, Jesus needed to power up with prayer. It's like a five-hour power drink. I don't know what that is for you. What triple espresso, latte, milk, silvers, you know, cinnamon twirl on top, whatever you do at Starbucks. Whatever your power surge is, nothing will compare to prayer. Nothing. We have a prayer team here at the church. We take it seriously. We are weak. We are the field that needs water. The access to it is prayer. Prayer is our pipeline and a necessity to stay woke. Without it, you'll be a withered plant in just a dirty field. I beseech you, as Jesus said, watch and pray. The next point that Jesus has for staying woke, all right, is to be aware. Have you ever found yourself completely unaware as to what's going on around you? I I, I don't know about you, but people are talking and you're not really listening, you're disengaged, and somebody says, right? "Um, Yeah, right, right. Maybe it's more a genetic makeup for men than women. I don't know. Right, honey? Uh, yes. Is that a test? Or no, whatever you think. I don't know about you, but if you give me a remote control and turn on SportsCenter or any sports, I can hear you talking. I can nod. My daughters can tell you. I can go, okay. It doesn't even work to mute the TV because I can still see what's happening. No, it's got to be turned off you got to physically stand right... See, they're laughing at me right here. you got to physically stand right in front of me and go, Dad, can you hear the words coming out of my mouth? I need $10 for gas. That's why I'm ignoring you. Turn the TV back on. Stay woke to be aware. Let's look at verse 42. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. How often times do we have heavy things in our life that make us go to sleep? So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Do you not have any awareness at all as to what's happening? Wake up. I need you. You're my friends. Jesus came back twice to find disciples sleeping after his reprimand and plea for their alertness, for them to stay awake. Disciples were completely unaware of Jesus' anguish and desire for support. Why? Because they didn't know what they didn't know. Have you ever heard that before? We don't know what we don't know. Kind of like parenting. I've read parenting books. They didn't help me out at all. All right? Because you don't know what you don't know. Until you are a parent and you walk through some things. And you find out when you said, my kid will never scream in a grocery store like that. What's wrong with those parents? A little bit of discipline, your kid might not be doing that anymore. And then they hire me as a youth pastor to dispense knowledge and advice about teenagers. And I would never had a teenager. So I stood up there in arrogance thinking I knew everything about teenagers. And then I get three teenagers. I did not know what I did not know. I did not know that your kid could really talk to you that way. We don't do that in our house. Here's what Jesus knew that the disciples did not know. He knew the trials the disciples would soon be facing, and the disciples were operating in complete unawareness. They were asleep. He knew that they would run and hide in the face of those trials immediately. That they would sink into denial, the enemy of awareness. If you do not stay woke, if you're not in in prayer, you will not be aware, you will be the opposite, you'll be in denial. Maybe not purposeful, intentional denial, but you'll be walking around completely unaware of the needs of yourself, your impact on others, the needs of others around you, what Jesus wants to do to you, what Jesus wants to do through you, you are in unawareness. To the fullness, the beauty, the blessing, the power of Jesus Christ. Because you're working in unawareness. Jesus knew that they would be facing their greatest trials, He knew that soon He would be gone. See, up to this point, the disciples had been walking around with this living legend. He made the lame walk again. He made the blind see again. Jesus would get down and touch the leper. He would raise people from the dead. He turned water to the wine. How glorious is that? And yet, even in all that happening right in front of them, they, they couldn't see Jesus in his greatest hour of near. His greatest hour of anguish and need, he couldn't see, they couldn't see What Jesus truly needed. They were unaware. It reminds me of a story in college. I went to a private school, Christian school, played soccer there, a little bit of baseball, then I found out it wasn't very good. But we had to take a freshman class called Old Testament Survey. Yes, it sounds as exciting as it really was. It was a freshman required course. About 300 to 500 students crammed in this amphitheater-type setting. We'd walk in there. We'd sit down, and our professor, balding, aging, white guy, hair right here only, glasses, all right, plaid shirt, khaki pants. You probably had the same professor if you went to a Christian college, all right? And you only get that joke if you went to a Christian college, but he would start his class the same way every time. I believe it was Professor Riggs that just popped into my head. He would start class the same way every day. He'd get up and said, so yesterday, let's review what we learned. He'd spend five minutes reviewing what we learned the day before. And you'd be going through your notes, making sure you highlighted it. Because whatever you covered in the review, hint, hint, would be on the test. And then he would say, let's pray. And he would invite a student in the room to pray. And then he would launch into his next lecture. Well, we went into this class, my best friend and I in college, Todd, and he would sit next to me every day. We'd be about the third row from the back and we'd sit there and I'd sit down, get my notes out and I'd start taking notes because I'm fastidious about notes and getting everything down. Because if I can write and listen, I'll remember it. Todd would sit down, slump over, slouch, put his head down and fall asleep. Because he knew that his boy Scott had the notes. So why do I need to do anything? I'll just talk to Scott later. And that was a great relationship. He got my back there, I got his back in other places. But it did start to get taxing, because he never took notes. So one day we go into class, and Todd sits down in his normal spots, lunches over, goes to sleep. I get my notebook out, get ready to take notes, and all of a sudden the professor throws a curveball and says, hey, today I'd like you to get out a blank piece of paper. Oh, we get out a blank piece of paper. I want you to write down the three key points from yesterday's lecture. Pop quiz, go. People are fluttering their papers out, their pencils and pens are out, they're starting to write and everything. I look over, Todd's asleep, sound asleep. I'm like, oh my gosh, dude, we're taking a pop quiz. So I elbowed him, and as a good friend. I leaned over and said, Todd, professor wants you to pray. (laughs) Todd, I don't know how he came out of a slumber that quick. Boom, popped right up. Without even looking around, put his head down. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for... (laughs) the opportunity to be in class today. I pray that you'd be Professor Riggs, that we would listen and learn today. Thank you for the opportunity to be at this college, and we hope that we learn a lot of things. Amen. And sat down. (laughs) People are turning around. People are laughing. I'm dying. I'm rolling. And without missing a beat, the professor's like, thank you, young man, but I don't think that's going to help you with the pop quiz. Get right in. (laughs) See, Todd was in the classroom. He was feet from the professor. He was sitting next to me, his best friend, taking a pop quiz. But he was completely unaware as to what was going on. And he fell for anything. He fell for anything. The disciples had been told what was going to happen. But they were not woke They were not in prayer. And because of that, they were unaware and they fell for exactly what Jesus said they shouldn't fall for. And if we do not stay aware, the enemy's gonna creep in and whisper anything in your ear and you know what? You're gonna believe it. And the enemy is the deceiver. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And if you do not stay aware, you're gonna fall for anything. And you may think you can't fall. You may think you're strong. But remember what Jesus said. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. I believe Jesus knew what what the disciples didn't know is that you are not strong enough to survive this life alone. And you better be aware of that. So you better stay woke. You better be in prayer. And you better be constantly vigilant, aware. Of what is happening around you, what Jesus wants to do to you, what Jesus wants to do through you, and what Jesus wants to do with others around you. Because that's the picture. Jesus, in this moment, was aware that he had to sacrifice himself for us to have a Savior. He was fully aware of it. And because of that awareness, he was able to overcome his fears through prayer. It's not that he didn't petition for a different way, but his awareness of what was put upon him propelled him to do what God created and sent him to do. Friends, are you aware of what's going on around you and how God wants to use you to further his work? Jesus, on the other hand, was keenly aware of the situation and his desire of an out. Jesus knew the disciples would soon leave him and he would be alone. And because of this, knowing that he would be alone, we come to our third point of why we need to stay woke. We need to stay woke for others. In Jesus' last time on earth, he wanted others with him. Not only did he want others with him, he knew that what he was doing was for the benefit of the others he wanted with him. Catch that. If you look at John chapter 17 quickly, you read what Jesus' last words were. And his prayer should break your heart because it was about praying for his disciples, praying for us, the future believers, that we would not lose heart, that Jesus would be an example to inspire us to live for others as well. Jesus' death was not only the passageway for us to be in communion and fellowship with God the Father, it was an example of how we should sacrificially live as servants. And yet, our eyes get heavy. Our burdens get heavy. Our lives get busy. We get complacent. We get distracted. We get narcissistic. How often do our prayers and petitions to God have everything to do with us? I know for me, my prayers are very self-centered at times. They're about my problems, my needs, my struggles, my wanting answers. Yes, Jesus did that. There's nothing wrong with that. But the bulk of his prayer too was others always about others. The bended knee to make mud in the dirt to put on a blind man's eye so he can see. The turning back to go work with lepers and touch lepers who are the untouched. The raising of a child from the dead. The calling forth of Lazarus, his friend. The turning away the eyes from the prostitute brought before him. The having dinner with sinners. The rebuke of Pharisees. The correction of his disciples. All done in love because he ministered to others. Jesus' life was sent here for others. And we as Christians are on this earth as a representation of Christ for others. I learned about this in some of the darkest times of my life. I've shared with you before how I went through a divorce. And that's not an easy thing for me to talk about because it's a hard time. But what I learned through that darkness and that despair of those years was I had friends in my life that cared for me. I I could not have made it through that on my own. But there was a deeper lesson that I learned through that as well. And that was that in my own hurt, frustration, anger, darkness, I still had to be there For others, specifically my kids. There's one thing I treasure the most about my memory of my kids, and that was our story time at night. We had this habit of when it was time to go to bed. The two girls, Morgan and Abigail here, shared a room, and we tucked tuck them in. Then Zach and I would come in. We'd lay down on the ground with pillows under us, and I'd launch into these stories, all sorts of stories. But the cornerstone of the stories at night for us revolved around this made-up horse called Esther and Cody. That were horses at a camp we used to go to, and the kids in the story my three kids in the story, would ride these horses up into this mountain and they encountered this magic meadow where all the animals talked. And there was, all right, there was Marty the moose, all right. There were the hyper otters, twins. Oh my gosh, can we do this? We can't do that. And I had all these voices. And what I didn't realize about the story until the divorce occurred and there was a week without your kids, a week with your kids that when my kids would come to my house, it wasn't these grand plans that we'd make to spend time together. The other they wanted was, Dad, are you gonna tell stories tonight? Now they've grown. It'd be odd to go in and tell my 22 year old daughter a good night story. <laughs> they still bugged me to turn it into a book. But what I learned was this. How do you be there for others? You don't need grand gestures. You may not think you're qualified for being there for others in their moments of need or hurt or pain because you know what the problem is? It takes time. You know why the stories faded with my kids sometimes? Because I got too busy and I got too distracted and I got too overwhelmed with my own problems, but I was missing out on the joy, the privilege, the fulfillment of being there for others. You don't just need others in your life to help you. You need to be in others' lives to help them. And that's what Jesus got. Regardless of my disciples being asleep and unaware, I'm gonna be there for them. In my own anguish and my own pain, it's not about me. We need to be there for others. In Galatians 6, verse 2, Paul shares this. Carry each other's burdens... And in this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Do we truly love our neighbors as ourselves? No, heck no. I like myself a whole lot better than I like some of you. That's why I go home at night and tell my kids to leave me alone and turn on Sports Center. I don't wanna to talk to anybody anymore. I deal with problems all day long as a principal. I don't need any more problems to deal with. But as a divorced dad... You know who God has started bringing into my life? Other divorced dads. I don't want to do that. I'll be honest with you. It's time. It's effort. But when I do it, I feel this purpose, this fulfillment, this like, wow. Because we're wired to be there for others. Just like Jesus was there for Adam and Eve in the garden. Just like Jesus was there in the garden of Gethsemane for the disciples. Just like he was there for you and me on the cross. He's there for us today. Let's close by looking at these final verses. Verse 45, then Jesus returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man has delivered into into the hands of the sinners. Rise, let us go, here comes my betrayer. Can you sense the finality of those words? Can you catch the tone? This is not just statements, these are declarative statements. Are you still sleeping and resting? The hour has come. I'm being delivered in the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's get out of here. There's my betrayer. Yes, in Jesus' humanity, I'm sure it's soaked with exasperation, disappointment, some anger, some frustration, some fear, and a plea. Don't let this pass you by. Sometimes in life, we get one shot for being there for others. Are we still sleeping and resting? The finality of it all is what Jesus wants us to understand. I know that for me, I can be more aware, more prayerful, and more supportive of others in my life. This is a story of being there for another person in their greatest pain and despair, but it's also a story about being for people there when they don't think they need you, to correct you, to steer you, to give you advice. It's not just when we're in pain and hurt, it's when we don't think we need things in our life. May we be a community of believers that are awoke, May we be a community of prayer warriors that petition Christ on behalf of others. May we be a community of Christians who are aware of what is happening around us, to us, through us, and with us. May we be a community that intercedes, advocates, and supports others in the good, the bad, and the ugly. In his last hours on earth, Jesus wanted to feel supported, protected, and not alone. He wanted those closest to him to lift him up in prayer as well. Just as the disciples fell asleep in the presence of Jesus, we too are asleep in the light of the current day. I'm gonna ask the band come up as I close out. This isn't the ending of our story today. Jesus was falsely accused. He was beaten, he was crucified. He died, he was buried he rose again. And because of that, we have a Savior in heaven who is constantly woke. He will not fall asleep on you. He is constantly in prayer for you to the Lord Father. He is constantly aware of everything going on in your life. And he is there for you no matter what. That was the example for us. We are a physical representation of Jesus on earth. May we not be found resting and sleeping. As he is woke eternally, may we too be woke on this earth. Let's pray.